0: So a unicorn status is actually not my brother's mom entrepreneur. It's convincing everybody after two years of nothing to do it again. That is by far what I think was my, like, I'm going to go down like that guy.
1: Hey, this is the Built in Seattle podcast. I'm Adam Schoenfeld. On this show, I chat with Seattle's best entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about how they think and how they operate. On this episode, I met with Manny Benita, who's the CEO and co-founder of Outreach. You can find them at outreach.io. Outreach is absolutely on fire. They recently raised $114 million and have been valued at $1.1 billion, that's billion with a B, putting them on a short list of cloud unicorns in Seattle. They're a market leader in the sales engagement space with over 350 employees right here in Seattle. Manny's a great leader. He grew up in Ecuador. He has a great story. We talked a lot about their pivot, a story Manny doesn't tell often, but after two years of hard work, the company was failing to the point where they were taking inventory on their furniture and he had to turn it around. We talk about how outreach hires for energy and Manny himself has a great energy that you'll see in this conversation. And we talk about how his wife came up with the idea for some of their innovative policies to support parents who are employees at Outreach. And finally, we'll hear about life as a unicorn, the new pressures and all the dynamics. I'm sitting here with the one, the only, Manny Medina. We're in Outreach's amazing new office. Is it too amazing? I love it. I love it. very nice.
0: Thank you. Thank you. We love it here. It was, it was hard to move out of the basement. <laughs> I miss the basement sometimes.
1: Yeah. That basement keeps you humble. <laughs> that basement keeps you humble. Very humble. So I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Thank Since you. like 2011, I think we crossed paths when we were in the, yeah in the Techstars Founders Co-op. When I was asking you how you did it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you just got way better than me at sales. It was like in a couple of months you figured it out. It was amazing. It's, we got a better product to sell and then we were selling it. That, <laughs> that, was, all- that was short of it. Those were fun times. But, yeah. uh, there's a vibe here, man. Like, thank you. How do you describe the culture and the vibe that's going on here? Well, um, one of the things that we have done since the very early
0: is uh, is that we hire for energy. Is we we feel that, as, as you know, we've been at this for a long time. We we pivoted from another company, and the thing that kept us going was our we motivating each other. So Andrew motivating me and Wes, Gordon motivating Wes and Andrew and me, and just each other just propping each other up. Uh, you could sometimes you go in your mind and you can see dark things, and you need somebody else to snap you out of that and be like, "We're gonna go get through this, and we're gonna do it." So we perpetuated that in our hiring, having other people that fills us with energy and fill each other with energy, and that's a lot of what you see here in the in the office. How do you how do you assess energy? Um, it's a quintessential human trait. You sort of like you either have it or you don't, and it comes in different forms. It comes in different. It comes in small and concentrated vials, or it can come in big, tall glasses. And, and you have to be able to recognize it. Um, and, and a lot of it, you feel. A lot of it, you ask for evidence on how do you motivate other people. Um, good energy drivers understand what motivates others. And they have uh, an innate interest in, 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 in curiosity about what makes you tick. And then and they will sort of play on that and, and, and make sure that you're continuously ticking. And they, get a, and they get a kick out of that. So my energy, for instance, is driven from seeing other people having energy. So I try to drive it because it drives me. You see what I mean? So it creates this yeah. flywheel of like, once you have energy, I get
1: energy from that. So I'll try to continue That's getting out of you. So people that have that energy try to create it in others, and it, it feeds that flywheel. That's a great way of thinking about it. Exactly. I, it's funny, because I hadn't heard it described that way, but I feel that walking around here. There is like a, a certain energy to the place that's... Yeah, and you also feel it like when it's not there, and then everybody wonders what happened, Who like who's
0: missing, what, you know. And it's not... We, we used to think it's music, right? Because back when we were all on the same floor, you can heal the salespeople, the SDRs, you know pumping, you know, really loud music, and you thought it was that, Um, it always felt like the lobby of the W Hotel, if you know what I mean, like you walk in and you feel like So, but once you drop that, and now that we have the sales team downstairs, you still feel the energy from the engineering team, from the, you walk in here, and you were literally in front of the uh, analytics team, and then you walk by the finance team when you wait to get here, and even though there should be dry and dull kind of areas, they're not. And it, maybe because it's Friday, maybe because it's in the afternoon, and it's sunny here in Seattle. But there is there is a little bit of a vibe in every single team that is unique to them.
1: It's amazing. How many employees now in the company? We're short of four hundred. Okay. Um, I don't know the last count so that exactly. we've had, approaching four hundred, approaching four hundred. So how how early was it that you started hiring for energy and sort of building that into the culture? Was that at the at the beginning, or is that something you figured out as you were scaling up? Um, it's something we figure out as we started making hires. Um, it started, it started to
0: be apparent when I would leave for extended periods of time for travel, for work, and uh, my co-founder would call me up, especially Andrew, who's very sensitive to it. He's like, something is missing. And like, yes, I'm not there. I'm like, yeah, but you not being here should not be that something missing. So what's missing? And that's when I realized that if we don't hire for energy, then there always be something missing where the energy source leaves. So at that point, we realized we need to hire for Engie across the board because that perpetuates. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how we got to it.
1: Very cool. Did you have any role models on that? Or is that something that just was kind of core to you and your co-founders that you guys wanted to bring to the culture? You know, um, it wasn't until we hired a gentleman by the name of Matt Millen um,
0: that we realized that that was it. That that had a name and it had a purpose and it had a style and it had a framework for it. And he learned it from Tony Robbins. And that's when we started riffing around what kind of energy you need to bring, what kind of energy needs to show up, and how do you show up strong, and how you drive that across the team. So we over dialed a little bit into a lot of the Tony Robbins sort of like ethos. We used to have a break a board breaking session in every company meeting, for instance. And yeah. And wow. It that's was, a first. It was a, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. It was incredibly intimidating. And it didn't resonate with everybody, right? Like it still had a lot of energy, but it wasn't the right energy that everybody was looking for. So we stopped doing it last year. Um, but the ethos of generating energy and hiring people for energy still remains. And and you see it in the teams. You see how it elevates the team's thinking and you see how it elevates the team vibes. And now, and now we have it codified in that we look for it, specifically in the leadership team, that the leadership has to be able to drive energy. And... I, I, we are interviewing for for CFO, and we saw a candidate coming through that had all the fixings. That person was a across the board, except for energy, and they did not get a hire. Passed. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting to see it coming from the team. I, I didn't even say anything, because I wanted to see what the team would say. And the team passed on energy. And this is the first time I see my team sort of coalesce around this particular point. So it's becoming entrenched in the culture. It is it is what keeps us vibrant.
1: Mm. Very cool. That's that's cool that you've been able to really make it something that people live by. Even when somebody comes in with great pedigree and like, here's a CFO. or oh, yeah. had all the names, like, had no.
0: all the right names, all the right pedigree. You would hire this person. You also know the rest of me along, And the moment that you notice that the energy wasn't there, that's when
1: you, that's when we realized that it wasn't going fit. That's a great test. Yeah. yeah. While we're on culture, so you guys have done some pretty cool things like with um, parental leave. Yep. Um, you've been very vocal about some big issues, taking stances on stuff. How have you, uh, maybe we can just talk about the parental leave thing, and then we can talk about kind of some of the stances you've taken on big issues. Yeah. So, um, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit of myself. Um,
0: I'm from Ecuador, as, as you know, and, uh, unlike many other entrepreneurs, I'm not, um, I don't see myself an entrepreneur. I see myself doing the only job I think I'm good at. And I grew up in a communist household. And for me, Power to the people was sort of like the thing, right? My head, my grandfather was the head of the Labor Party. I, uh, I protested in March. I You know, I, I I burned tires on the street, which is not a thing here, but it is big in South America. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always being of that ilk. And whenever I see something that benefits me, I immediately wonder will it benefit everybody else. So the way this came about was when we had to have my last daughter. Um, is it last or latest? Last. Last. Okay. My last daughter. And... We um, we were going through serious sleepless nights of a couple of weeks of just like not getting shot eye. And I'm trying to do some work on, in the morning. So I, and I didn't sleep through a night. So I was pretty crabby. And the idea of a night doula came to us and we researched and we found one and it changed our lives. Having a full night's sleep, it's, I, I can't even describe it to you, how, uh, like how, how, how life changing it was from not sleeping. And a couple of things became really apparent to me. First of all, I was a better, kinder person. Second of all, it's not that expensive. And third, you only need to do it for a very short period of time because if you're diligent, you eventually get the baby to sleep five hours in a stretch and those five hours become... Primo, right? Like that's what you need and you're back on on track.
1: That's a, having been there, that's a game changer. You get get the
0: five hour cutoff and then you're, you're back, you're back in business, right? So all I needed is, it's a little bit of help getting me to the five hour cutoff and then we're home. Um, So we hired this night doula and she was incredible. And she will come in around uh, 10, 10, so my wife will go to sleep around 830 or so. She will come in around 11 and then I will hand over the baby and then I will hand over the baby to, to, to her. And she will stay on until 4.30 in the morning when I usually get up. And so it's it's about five and a half hours a night. Um, and if you account that, it usually takes about three to four weeks to get that period. And we calculated that ended up being around eight grand. And it's an eight grand bonus that happens you know one, twice, three times in your life as an outreacher. It's not that much. And it's life-changing in terms of like you being a kinder, nicer, well-rested, more productive person. So we decided... If it's good for me, it gotta be good for everybody. So we roll it out and, and it turned out to be a great hit. And we roll it out early too. That was a funny thing. So we roll it out when we were competing with Google and Microsoft and Amazon in terms of hiring. And we, don't, we can't pay you as much, but we can attract more women. We can attract other people who wanna have kids. Because even the men at the age of you know, 29 to 30, they're getting serious in their relationship and at that point they want
1: to have kids. This is the place to come and work. So let me be clear. You're an outreach employee, uh-huh. you have a baby, you go out on leave. You give them eight thousand dollars to fund the night doula. Correct. Okay, that's incredible. Yes, and and we also have a, an
0: stipend for for food delivery. I don't think a lot of people take us up on that, um, but a lot, but everybody does take us up on the night doula. That's that's an incredible benefit. That um I would like to take credit for it, but it was my wife's idea to be
1: to be frank. Give credit where credit's due. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's, yeah. right. that's, that's right. fantastic. So people take and then they're coming in rested and they're not a wreck like right. I was when I had my kid, or when your previous kids game. Correct. Came. Correct.
0: And, and you're just running on caffeine and being all mad all the time because you didn't get enough sleep. Um, the other thing that it does is that it sends a signal to the market. And that was the most powerful thing for us is that it sends a signal to the market that it's okay to work at a high growth startup and wanting to have kids. There, You don't have to trade off. So a lot of a lot of moms, especially, they feel the burden of the family on them. And for them, it becomes a trade-off of like, oh, I have to work at a high-growth startup, but I can't have a family. And they have to make choices in the career path. And of course, you can always go on the mommy track, right, and be like that partner at a you know law firm or a consulting firm or whatever. I didn't want to have that distinction. And I feel that there is a lot of things that if you do early, it cements in the culture early. And then, and then it just goes, right? It's flywheel again. Mm-hmm. So you have a few of the early employees that take you up on it, and all of a sudden, they become VPs and it becomes the way that you do things. So if we did it early, I figure that it's, a, it's
1: kind of one of those problems that you don't have to think about anymore because it's ingrained in the culture. What are some other things you've done with culture, more tactical like that early that have had an impact? Um, I put my first
0: uh, independent board member. So the person that went, I, I, you know, you go on the street and you ask somebody to go and take a board seat was Sarah Embach. And and Sarah back was not only um, an, early, an angel investor, but she was an operator and somebody who's seen growth. And by putting a, an operator woman on the board, that was so much senior than all the other board members. So this is Series A. VJ was on my board, mm-hmm. um, and this is pre pre Mayfield. So the board started with VJ and Sarah and Gordon, and then the founders. Right. And, and that set the tone of how the board meetings are going to run. So we were very open, very honest, super upfront. Uh, all issues, all cards up on the table. And we talk about everything until everything was resolved. And then once we started adding board members, so you know Mayfield, Rajiv, and Karan, et cetera, the conversation just got elevated, got bigger with more numbers, et cetera, more people. But it sort of stayed the same. Now, the effect of having a woman on the board that early is that she helped me attract a lot of women leaders, who then got us to a point in which a lot of our a lot of our middle management and and, and leadership layer here in outreach are women. I think it's north of 30%. 40. It's 40%. So 40% of, of 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 leadership, meaning management and and uh, VPs, et cetera, are women. And I think that that for tech is really hard to do, especially for a small company and as hard charging and as high growth as we are. And, once, and again, it becomes a perpetuating thing. So I'm always looking for the flywheel effect, right? The point of leverage where you do something early and it pays 10x in the end. And this is one of those. You get a person on your board that is a woman, very strong, to, that everybody listens to. And then the, the wheel perpetuates. The second thing that I did is I asked Sarah to, to start having one-on-ones across the company, not only with my directs, but by all sorts of people in the organization. So high performers, um, mid-performers, and then just get a good sense of everybody. It, 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 I did it for two reasons. One, because I wanted a completely independent view of an operator. How, how am I doing? But the second piece is that again, it had a board member interacting right down deep with everybody, and that sends a signal, right? That that there is real power divided in, in the, independent of you know uh, uh,
1: uh, of, of who you are, etc.
0: And that that really meant a lot for a lot of people who joined because of her.
1: That's great. Yeah, actually so common that people wait on that independent seat until Series B, Series C, right? Or, or before public. Are
0: like, all right, who, who, who's going to step off the board and we need to open up a seat and put a woman there to check the box in California, right? Right. right. It, so it's, or, or you embrace whatever diversity, inclusion metric, you know, when you're really big and you're getting pan in the press. It, this is one of those things that if you do early, it bakes into the culture and you don't have to think about it because it's
1: just becomes an extension of your original idea. Well, have got a lot of flywheels going here now. try. We're on. You recently, uh, you raised some funding recently that put you into the unicorn club, meaning over a billion valuation. Yeah. Um, I know you still want to be in the basement, but now you're in a nice office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's life been like as a unicorn at reaching that level? I mean, obviously much more visibility that comes from that. And how, how has it changed things here?
0: Um, it's a lot of visibility,
1: which begets a lot of, um, a lot of eyes on you
0: a lot of performance expectations. In the past you could you could miss a lot of things, you could you you don't have to hit the number with panache, you just have to hit the number and like make sure that everybody stays in the boat. Now you have to hit it and your margins need to be tight and your CAC payback needs to be x many months and your LTV to CAC numbers need to be pristine and and you have to do it touching your nose, rubbing your butt and doing squats. Like it's it's just like there's all the things that you have to do. To hit the number, just you know, so you look pretty in public, and the and the and the barometer for what's a great company changes every couple of years. Like it's a rule of four now. It used to be something else before. Um, so the um, the trick is, is staying. At some point, we you know we will be publicly held, and and we have to be able to to do well for for all stakeholders, right? Our employees, our customers, and the shareholders. But you know i don't want that to distract from the truth so there is a truth economic metric that that, that keys off as to how well we're doing for us is daily active users and weekly active users and we track that like a hawk and and we want to get better at tracking that because the way we track activity is you actually have to perform something in the platform for us to count you as an active user not just logins and that's very important to us and I don't want the, the, the vagaries of, of, you know, of pre post public companies that worry about the quarter in, quarter out kind of thing to distract us from our true north metric, which is in, empower every customer facing rep with a workflow that makes it more successful over time. You see what I mean? And our goal is to own all customer facing rep workflows. So as long as we're doing that, we're doing it, we're doing it right doesn't matter what the margin oscillates because we happen to throw boxes at a, at a problem or you know we blew the, the, the budget in, in in professional services like those are sort of like bumps in the road that that, that are not you know uh, they're not telltales of the underlying economic force that we're, that, we're, that we're addressing so having to navigate that, as an unit is it's a little bit more difficult than we were, you know, worth half, where we can just stay true to our core and then just whatever.
1: Right. Everybody's asking you all these other things, but you have that, that true north. Exactly.
0: Like, you know, we're still having the conversations on how did the month do. And we're closing a lot bigger deal. So the month is going to have higher variability. When in reality, I'm more worried about creating new engines of growth. Like, what's the next portfolio we're going to go acquire? And is that going to be sold or is it going to be self-serve? How's that gonna map out against the other workflows that we have? How what are we doing for the dating? How we continue to empower the, the rep that is joining us? And, and we, can we make it smart? Can we reduce stuff out of the stuff that he does every day? Those are sort the of things that concern me, right? Like those are sort the of things that make me run to the fire. You know, whether I deal punter or not, it's like
1: right.
0: it gets gets a little bit a little bit too much sometimes. I used to be that guy, right? Like I used to be, I used to show um I used to have Inside Square, and I used to give all my new board members an Inside Square license, and they would just like refresh <laughs> at the end of the month to see, to see the pipeline being converted into closed. And and it's just, just generating more questions than answers. And I'm like, what about this deal? Like, Where is it at? I don't know. Like, they're signing somewhere. So, anyway, so getting out of the tactical and into the strategic is, is a trick. Got it. And how do you keep the team thinking at that level? Um, it's a great question. So it's tricky because I, I was talking to Elisa Fink about this uh, yesterday and how it's hard to be a small, large company. And, and, and this is coming from Tableau, mind you, which was a, a mid-cap company for mm-hmm. intents and purposes. But us is where you have to play both. There is no luxury uh, uh, of, of being the strategy guy. So I, I was telling another CFO candidate that you do your job so that you can be a strategic. You see what I mean? It's kind of like you finish your homework, you can go out and play. You have to run a tight ship. You have to run a good shop for you to be able to participate in strategic thinking. If your house is on fire, there is no strategy. You know what I mean? Like, go right. fix your home. So there is um you have to, do, the short of it is you have to do, do, do both. You have to be good at both. But many times, good tactics lead to good strategy. So the ability to be a good executioner, makes you privy to better strategic thoughts and to be a, a, a more a steadier hand on the wheel. And that's what I demand from all our executives is that there's no, there's no such thing as, as, a, as a, we all have icy roles still. Even after 400 people and the high valuation, I still have a to-do list of like Manny's own shit contribution that I have to go put forth just for everybody to work. So.
1: Are you still getting in there and you know closing support tickets and going into prospect with the reps? As of a year ago, I know you were doing that stuff. But is, as you balance you know, having to be more strategic versus being in the weeds, do you still get down to that level? Um, I
0: haven't touched a ticket in a long time. I do get escalations every once in a while, which I do take. And then I run to resolution so I can see the close. Um, I still prospect because you can... You can take the monkey out of the jungle, but not the jungle out of the monkey. So I, I'm I, I still get in there and get into accounts and ask for accounts and go get out, you know, open doors because that's that's always been my passion. I, I'm
1: always fascinated as to what makes people tick and respond to things. You think you'll still do that when you're four thousand employees? Yeah, I mean it's interesting
0: because I just came out of a, a Goldman Sachs conference um, where I had fourteen meetings in seven hours. And every single one of those meetings was, without, we're not racing. So it was an investor that I wanted to get him to know us, get excited about us. So when we have the next event of funding, they know who we are and they're just as excited as they were the first time. So it was 14 events of getting somebody excited. So it's kind of like a pitch. Mm-hmm. No, it's not like a pitch. It is a pitch. So for every single one of them, I have the same drawing in my notebook 14 times of like me. You know, walking you through a plan and like doing it live and scribbling and making you feel that you're part of this development. And, and it's really good. And once you develop that muscle, it becomes a little bit of an addiction, right? Because like you, you feel the pop in the other person when that person leans in a little bit and he's like, holy shit, you're doing it. And, and doing it over and over again, it's, it's addictive to me. So I do have, I, I don't think I will ever be able to get rid of that dopamine release I get from, from pitching and from getting somebody to,
1: you know, part with their cash. That's, I, I remember you in the early days being when you were doing every sales call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were that way very much of very excited and we'd talk about what you were doing. And there was one point where you were asking me for advice and then a few days later you were just doing things that were totally next level from what I'd thought about. Uh-huh. But I, I know you're the kind of guy that loves that that dopamine.
0: Yeah, thank you. No, and it, it is well, once you get over the mental hurdle that sometimes it's hard and you're gonna get a lot of nose. Uh, you get excited about the challenge, right? It's like a puzzle that you're trying to yeah. solve, and you try to solve real life. So it's it's fascinating.
1: All right. Well, you want you weren't always a unicorn. Probably. It it uh, it took a little work. Yep. I want to go back and talk about the pivot. Um, mm-hmm. There have been some famous piv- pivots, Slack and others. Yep. I know you've talked about the pivot a little bit, but I'd love to go through it. When I met you, the company was Group Talent, mm-hmm. and I'd love to just go through what Group Talent was and then. What led to the, the pivot to what Outreach is today?
0: Yeah. Um, so group talent was, uh, it was intended to be a marketplace for hiring talent. And it, it re- originally started as a marketplace for hiring groups of talent. Because our hypothesis was that talented people love to work with each other. And sometimes they're well as groups. And you want to hire them as a group because that gives you all this intangibles of leverage. Um, then we pivoted to become just a marketplace for talent, and at the end of um, 2013, we had two months of cash in the bank. So we were supposed to have a huge December. December didn't come through. We had a soft December, and that put at risk our viability as a company. And I'm looking at the bank account, and this is not going anywhere. So we call a meeting, and I remember it was in Gordon's apartment, where he had a one bedroom downtown in one of the big buildings downtown. And we went into his uh, social area, and we lay out this huge uh, piece of paper, like that covered the, cover the entire desk. And we mapped out our, our sales process and how did we go from you know reach out to discovery to proposal, etc. And we backed it down to to meetings and then activities. And then we figured that there was a, there was a, a rhyme. There was a a pattern that if we were able to execute a particular type of activity and a lot of it, we should be able to 10x our main generation per rep. So we went and built, the original build out was was two phases. One was a marketplace for writers where Gordon built this workflow where we would get you, like your name and whatever, and, and we would execute a Google search and return whatever results we saw. And that would be on the left side of the screen. And then the right side of the screen will be a, a composed window where there will be a templated email at the bottom and a, and a line for you to write a one or two liner as an intro that had to do with you personally. And then on the back end of that, we created a marketplace for writers. So there, I don't know if you know this, but there is on an, an bottomless quantity of freelance writers in the US. Anywhere from aspiring comedians to grad students, anybody, there's a lot of people who would write freelance. So we told those people that we will pay anywhere between 2 five cents to a dollar per email, and they will get paid per email, and the email will have to be reviewed, et cetera. So we set up the system. We we'll onboard the writer. The writer will get the screens. They will get paid by email. They can lo- work as long as or as little as, as they wanted to, and that will generate the meetings that will go out and reach out to, to companies pitching our product. And then the second part of the engine was the follow-up. Right? If the email didn't get replied, there was an engine that would ping you back and say, hey, I know this, you, et cetera, like, which is the core, part of the core of the product. Those emails generated somewhere between 40 and 80% reply rates. Wow. It was incredibly high. And a lot of it was the follow-up, but also the personalization, the personalization at scale. So our first idea was actually the marketplace provider's personalization, not what outreach is right now, right. but by the marketplace. And we pitched it to Boris Vertz, who you know. Mm-hmm. And, and Boris was like, that's the future. Personalization is the future. Personalization on scale is the future. And that was what got funded. That was the first $150,000 into the, not new entity, but into, into what it is, outreach. Uh, he dragged Chris DeBoer along, and they put in 75 each. And, and it turns out, as we tried to sell that, people did not want the personalization, but they wanted the, re- they, they wanted the reply rate. So like, I want to get a 40% reply rate, but I don't want to have some unknown dude write me emails. So then we tried the second piece, which is uh, building the, uh, the, repl- the the reply engine. And as we were trying to sell that, people people started taking to it, and 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 asking for more features and more features and more features. And we were selling orig- originally to recruiters, and we and we landed and we and we thought um, the, the the most motivated, the highest motivated recruiters are are um, agency recruiters. So we started trying to sell to Harvey Nash, no, Harvey Nash, uh, and a few others and they just don't buy tech. It was really hard to get into buy tech. We ended up selling to a company called App Dynamics, which eventually sold to Cisco, yep. and the recruiting team bought it. And eventually one of the recruiters brought it to their sales team and said, hey, you guys should try that. And that was the end. So when they tried it, they were like, we need to buy more licenses of this. And then the same thing happened at Cloudera where the recruiting team bought it and then they brought it to the sales team and they were replacing Yesware at a time and then just took off. And then what we did is we worked like mad to take every single product request and turn it around overnight. So between Andrew, Gordon, West and I, as we were launching the sales teams and they come in with requests around CRM sync or different, uh, different formatting options or different, you know, you know, inbound, turning inbound into emails, whatever, we, we just tried to turn around each of those features in one or two days. So the product sort of got built really quickly on the back mm-hmm. of this core idea and just to try to serve more customer and then that
1: allows us to actually sell more. So it's, it's easy to kind of think back to once it jumped to the sales team at App Dynamics that, that it spread. Yep. But how obvious really was that, right? And like, how strong was the signal and the pull? And mm-hmm. like, how strong was your conviction that, oh, now we have the right thing at that point?
0: You know, and there's a lot of saying about how entrepreneurs are getting lucky. We got lucky in that we had a bunch of signals coming to us all at once. I think somebody introduced us to Samuel mm-hmm. Sundararaj. Who, um, who also was like, you guys should be selling this to salespeople, and then AppDynamics Dynamics wants to buy it for salespeople. We start getting bites from sellers who want to want to use it, and we were always afraid because we always thought the sales tech market is seems really busy. You've seen those eye charts with all the sales and marketing tech, and it's just a lot, right? And we're like, we're, we're gonna walk into that? Are you guys crazy? Like, you know, we're gonna get killed. We don't have any cash. Like nobody knows about us. Like, what are we doing? And and. The feed that we can get it from the market is that there is no workflow. There is template management tools. Yeah. There is dialers. There's even calendar things. But there's nothing that sort of tie the whole thing together. And there's no automation. And as long as we were able to provide that, that we're going to be okay. So, and we used to, the acid test for me that sort of really brought it home was when we, I sold myself for a for long, before, before Mark joined me, I used to sell to individuals. So I wouldn't sell to a company. I will, I will call <laughs> a rep. One rep. I will call a rep and I will, if I didn't get a credit card from that rep at the end of that call, then that would be a fail. So I did that 60 times until I was able to say, there is something here because every every pitch lands and the rep will on the credit card and they will try it. And so we every will- Every time for 60. Every, like for a, a good chunk of the 60 did it. Incredible. And then, and it was individual credit cards, right? So Their we, own money. Their own money. I wouldn't. I would not. I would not. I would not. Add, like, we didn't have got time it. or patience to go into some, some long sales cycle. Right. I needed validation, and the best way to validate it is product market fit. If somebody's willing to part money with you, so we sold individuals, and if we added value to those individuals, then we knew we were in the right direction. So after we did it with about six
1: reps, we were like, all right, we got something here. Got it. Yeah. So the signals were really piling up. I can see how that would be super compelling, especially with your hands on the wheel, talking to them yes one on one like exactly. that. Exactly. And then we would
0: turn around and like see their usage, right? And see, are they getting success? Are they booking meetings? Mm-hmm. What kind of replies are they getting? We were all up in everybody's business in terms of understanding how they're using it and what are they getting out of it. To the point that, I mean, this sounds, this, 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 this may sound a little, a, little, um, a little weird, but there were reps that were so successful using Outreach that sometimes I would demo their environment when we were really early as opposed to mine because they were just killing it. They were getting like, Jason Vargas is getting, like, 70 80% reply rates on on, on, on on appointment, sales appointments. And he had, like, this methodology of, like, bumping in twice on LinkedIn and then an email and then a call and then, like, bumping them again. And his reply rates were just through the roof. So sometimes I would be more proud of the work that he was doing than the work that I was doing myself.
1: Well, yeah, what a great sign that the customers were taking it exactly, out-innovating even the stuff that you had done. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's what sort of gave us a lot
0: of comfort that it was okay to walk into a really busy environment because we had a unique value prop and we can just scale it.
1: So you had a lot of confidence build there. Did, one thing I wanted to ask you is, and I don't know if everybody knows this, but you guys worked hard at Group Talent and it wasn't, we yes. weren't talking about a few months before the pivot. We were two years into it. Two years. And you guys were, I remember because we were sitting right there with you. You yep. guys were working hard. Yep. We were all working hard in that office, but was there any point where it was, man, I don't know if we want to try this or how, how'd how you pull everybody along? Investors, employees, found co-founders, did it happen easily or was there some I, kind of resistance? I, I call that my proudest moment as an entrepreneur. So a unicorn status is actually
0: not my proudest moment as an entrepreneur. It's convincing everybody after two years of nothing to do it again. That is by far what I think was my, like, I'm going to go down like that guy. Because, so it happened, um, the way it happened, it was during the crunchies. I, mean, I remember that night because I was parked outside of the, uh, this, the, the place where the crunchies were going to happen. And I, and I called my co and I called Andrew. And, and Andrew puts me on speaker with Wes and Gordon. And I said, what are you guys doing? We're doing inventory.
1: Like to sell the computers, sell the computers. and the chairs.
0: Because it, like, it, something came to me that I was like, if I don't turn this around, everything will be for naught. And I think I gave like the finest speech in my life at that point. Because I just came out of walking with Boris, where I pitched him this new idea. And he was willing to put money into the new idea, even though he already was a million and a half to millions down in rich with nothing to show for. Mm-hmm. So I asked him for another go, for a pivot with this other idea around workflows, for, of which he has never seen it before, right? Because nobody has done it before. Right. And I convinced him to do it. So Boris was like, let's do it. So I called my founders and be like, hey, guys. Everybody can walk out of here and get a job. Like we're all competent. Uh, Gordon had worked at uh, SQL Server at Microsoft. Wes had been at a gaming studio. Andrew was a designer. All of you will get a job. But none of you will be an entrepreneur, and none of you will be able to call your own shots. But there is one more go that I want to pitch you guys, and is and is we take the workflow that we built and we sell that, and. Not only we're gonna, did nothing else exist in the market, I did a little bit of research. Nothing else was out there that did that. And I had Boris ready for a 70, $75,000 check, which buys us two more months <laughs> of not dying. And, and, and they were like, I don't know. I'm tired. Like Wes, Wes was already so out that he already booked like a two-week vacation in the Bahamas or like so, somewhere in Asia with his, with his dad. And, and if we were gonna pivot, we needed all hands on deck because we needed to rebuild this customer facing which was not the same as, as internal mm-hmm. user. And Gordon was like, I can do it, but I can do it by myself, dude. Like, Wes is leaving, what are we doing? So we talked Wes out of bringing his laptop with him and worked the entire time, but he's on vacation. And to turn this around and like double down on this new idea. And then we had a board meeting with, where, where it was even funnier because uh, Boris came out and said, yeah, I'm ready to put in $75,000 and Chris was like, I'm already too invested in this company, and I don't think they're going to go anywhere. But Boris's conviction got Chris to invest, and then everybody was in. And at that point, we were were set to go. And the fact that I was able to talk my founders out of quitting and and to to sort of get that last bottom of of the tank juice to reignite the engine. And I told them, look, guys, like the one asset that we have is the fact that we're all brilliant. We're working on the wrong problem. But everybody here is super smart, super good at what they do. We just need to vector ourselves into the right problem, and I know we're going to kill it. And the fact that we're already being through hell and back actually makes us invincible. And that sealed the deal. And after that, we, like, we raised that, and then they forced me to go and raising my serious seed. And, and I don't know if Sugarman told you this, but we, when I asked him why he invested after we put us through the ringer, he told me, because you're cockroaches. You will never die. So I know that at
1: the very least, I'll see the money back. So that's the story. It's incredible. I mean, having been through hell and back, you can't manufacture that with a team, right? That you that's can. just something you can't. Right. Once right. you're in that
0: crucible where you, right. you sort of become a stronger alloy that you're alone, that's what got us to where we are. That's incredible.
1: It's incredible. I mean, it, it makes me think definitely if you're at that point to kind of consider if you do have that next act and you have the energy, if you can... But light the fire again, magic can happen. But imagine if you would have broken up, right? Like none of this would have happened, right? Everybody would have gone and
0: started their own thing. I'm sure I would have gotten a job somewhere else and I would have making money and being miserable and et cetera, right? So there is that level of craziness and luck in entrepreneurship that you're able to call what is obviously the wrong call in your life and make that work out. Absolutely.
1: Whew. Dude, that is a great story. I, so. I don't think I'd heard it at that level. I have not heard the sitting in your car at the Crunchies story. It was, yeah. It was, I don't tell it that much because, you know, it's, it's a personal story.
0: But that was probably my finest moment.
1: You probably remember the smell of the air and the song that oh, was I playing, remember everything.
0: It felt like hours. And I'm sure it was five minutes. Yeah. But I remember, I smelled it, the smell, of the, like, the smell of the air, the smoke of people smoking around my car because they're walking into the Crunchies. And like, people look at me, why am I talking on the phone in the car at night and parked right outside the stage, et cetera. It was
1: great. Thanks for sharing that, I, I, I love that. Um, I wanna ask you a little bit about um, customer obsessed. I've heard you say that, mm-hmm. and, and what that means. So a lot of people talk the talk, but mm-hmm. I have I just wanna spend a minute or two on like how you make that real here. Yeah, I've been a customer of yours twice, I've felt like the care that goes into the product, the care that goes into the service. Um, but I'm curious just how you, how you think about that customer obsession, how you bring that in here.
0: Yeah, so, so first of all, it, it begins with where we came from, because we are a pivot and we we felt lucky every day that we were alive. Mm. And then we felt lucky every day that we had a customer. So we we appreciated every customer more than you think. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's one of those, like, you don't understand how lucky we feel the fact that you believe that we can deliver what we're going to deliver for you. So we always had this deep appreciation for our customers, for relieving in the early products, for... Putting up with us with, you know, the the tech that sometimes it didn't work and we have to stay up all night and fix it for you. And the patience that we had they had with us, especially the early ones. So so for me is 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 it's beyond the words. For me it's visceral. Like I appreciate every every single customer that we have. And 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 then the question is when we were really early, people used to ask us, okay, you're not gonna have to pick what kind of company you are. Are you a product, are you a product company, you're an engineering company, you're a sales company, or marketing company? How about a customer success company? Mm-hmm. So how about, how about we make our true north being making the customer successful and living for that, right? Everything we do is to make sure that the customer is getting the return of what they had. And one of the things that Matt Millen taught me is that you could divide then the company into promise makers and promise keepers.
1: Then hmm. you
0: go to market as a bunch of promise makers mm-hmm. and the rest of the company is the promise keepers. And if you, if you, if you build a company like that, then you're always fulfilling on your promises and it becomes a, a, a point of pride, Right? Mm-hmm. I, may, I gave you a promise as a company, as a group, and then we're going to pay through on that promise. Mm-hmm. And that's how we live customer obsession. And it's codified it's in our cultural values that we're
1: one with the customer. Yeah, it's so interesting because I've been a customer of yours and I've been at dinners that you guys host with customers and prospects. And it you can feel it. It's kind of like the way you w- walk into the office here and you feel the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can kind of feel that coming off your customers. It's a pretty rare thing. Um, how do you think... How do you advise other companies to do that early on that don't have the luxury of the pain <laughs> <laughs> to I don't to know sort of drive that
0: I don't I don't know um, you know I, I think I get I get I get this made fun a lot that that because I'm Latino I'm so emotional I think that you have to this is this is emotional period like you know starting a company like works every angle of your being your your mental your physical and your emotional and. And my, my recommendation to everybody is that is that build it in your own likeness and build it in a way that drives you at all times. Somebody asked me for advice when what do you do to not burn out? And to you and, and my the only thing I can think of is do something you truly love mm-hmm. that you truly 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 like at all times you love to do, it, and then it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like you're burning out. So if you commit yourself emotionally you will find ways to drive your own energy. Like it will just come out of you and it will become infectious and you will look for other people who do it too. Right. And then it's sort of like it becomes this, this self-assembling group of people that sort of belong with you and belong right. in this journey.
1: And that flywheel just kind of becomes and, internal and external the way that exactly. your passion flows into the product and the service and the customer success and like every touch that you have. With precisely, it. precisely. And, and don't don't ever let go of the details.
0: The details will matter at all times. Like how... Mm-hmm. How you treat it, like how you respond to a customer uh, to a customer support email. How do you get somebody on the phone when somebody spits at you? How do you deal with it? Um, how do you deal with violation customer uh, of, of of core values? Like all those things become crucial milestones in the company that will determine what you are going forward. Right? It's kind of like one of those books where you make your own adventure. You come to a point in the company's life and you have two choices. And the choice that you make will determine who you are in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are those details are incredibly important. Mm-hmm. There is no free lunch. You have to go through the through the hard things and just I love see that. through it.
1: Bring the emotion and care about the details. Yeah. You know, some of it. All right. I want to be mindful of your time. So I'm going to wrap up with the Supersonic Six. All right. I got my corny name for our <laughs> Seattle podcast. Let's uh let's do so it. So you can take your time as much time as you want on the answers, but I'll just ask the question. I won't follow up. Okay. So however much you want to go. But Number one, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? Um, I think it
0: needs more adventurous early stage venture capital. People who are willing to take more risk on an, on unproven entrepreneurs We um, just need more of that. I, I, I wish that as an unproven entrepreneur, I didn't get anybody's
1: time here. So I had to go to the Bay and sort of live there for a while. So investors, be more adventurous. I like that word. Yep. Yeah. Um, number two, if you could go back to the beginning, would you still found your company in Seattle? Yes, undeniably, yes. Undeniable, I, I tried to convince
0: my founders to to move to the Bay, and they and they blocked it. And I am glad that they did. The Seattle is an incredible place to build a company.
1: Number three, who's a Seattle company or founder that you're following or studying right now?
0: I'm a, I'm a so this has got to be tribe. I'm a huge screaming fan of both Bezos and Satya. I, I learned from, from both of them. I think they're both really and human in their own unique ways.
1: Nothing wrong with that. Those guys have done all
0: right. They, I'm sure they have, but is, I'm sure it's in, in everybody's mind. But
1: those are the ones that, that I, I can't get enough of. Number four, what is the truth that you know, but other people think is false or crazy? I think
0: immigration is good for this country. I think bringing people from the outside would actually make us all stronger and richer and wealthier and better off. The other you, way
1: around. Thank you for sharing that, and you've been very vocal on that. So people I should have. go read what the stuff you put out in the world on that. Yep. Number five. What do you know today that you'd wish you'd known when you started your company?
0: I wish I'd known more about. I wish I would have been able to tap more into my curiosity about what drives people, mm. um, because now that I'm that I'm I'm at a scale where we're hiring growth executives. I can't teach them anything. So even though I'm their boss, they're telling me what to do. I'm not telling them what to do. So the only thing I can contribute is is continue to set the vision, continue to set the energy bar high, but then care about them as humans. Make them feel good and appreciated and like continue to care and feed for what drives them. And I wish I would have known that earlier because
1: that would have made me a better boss. All right. Last one, number six. What ask do you have for this audience? What can this community do to help you? Start more companies. Start more companies. Start right. more companies. Take the plunge. There's plenty of money. Somebody will fund you. Just do it. All right. I love it. Thank you. I Thank love you. the stories. I love hearing about the pivot. I've learned a ton from you along the way. I'm sure anybody listening will as well. For people that want to keep in touch, where should they follow you and follow Outreach? Um, Manny at Outreach.io. It's my email um,
0: or on LinkedIn, Medinism.
1: Perfect. You want to drop the mic? Let's do it. Boom. Boom.